everyone. My name is Caroline, and tonight I'm going to be reading Exodus um, 33:12 to 34:7, and it's on page 77. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that, the, that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me from your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know your name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see, see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, my, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first one, and I'll write on them the words which were first on the tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to, seen, or to be seen anywhere on the mountain, not even the flocks and the herds may graze in the front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, Maintain, maintaining love to a thousand and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Good evening, my name's AJ. Uh, I'm going to do the second reading, which is in two parts. So get ready for some Bible gymnastics. We're going to start um, with Psalm 73, which you'll find on page 500, and then we're going to skip to Romans 8, which you'll find on page 972. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens, they're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. 
they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. If you uh, now turn over to page 972 uh, to Romans 8, I'm going to start reading at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yet to meet, my name is Nick. It's a pleasure to have you here. And as Nick mentioned before, we're kicking off today the year of goodness. Kind of starts with an important question. What does it mean that God is good? Christians love to talk about how good God is. I remember going on a trip to Fiji, hanging out with some of the Christians in a local village, and they always had this saying. It was like, God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. You might have heard it before. I was like, gosh, I get it, all right? He's good. We don't need to talk about it all the time. But it's central to the scriptures, right? Like Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. But what does it mean that God is good when you get the call from the doctor and the diagnosis is worst case scenario? What does it mean to say God is good when you lose your job and you're not sure how you're going to support your family? What does it mean when you lose someone dear to you far too soon? 
What does it mean when you've been praying for years that God would take away that, that relentless depression, that anxiety that just sits underneath everything, and yet he doesn't seem to be listening to you? What does it mean to say God is good when literally everything in your life is falling apart and you've got nothing to show for it? We need to interrogate our faith sometimes because on the surface we say these things that we do believe, God is good, God is God is good, but how do we really understand that in the mess and the reality that is our life? Now, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where life just seems to be falling apart and you tell your friend that you just unload and tell them everything and they go, oh, don't worry, God is good. Don't you just want to shake them? So like, come on, man, like don't diminish my pain. Don't, don't minimize what I've been going through. And it's a fair thing to feel like that. And yet they, they kind of have a point. God, God is still good. He, he is good. And yet our pain is real. And those two things hold intention. And both those things are true at the same time. And we need to understand how can that be true? How can it be true that God is good and life isn't sometimes? So to, to do that, we're going to head to Mount Sinai. I'm going to hang out with my good bud Moses. Moses is awesome. He's great. We're going to see the way that God just reveals his own goodness to him in incredible ways. So if you still get your Bibles open, keep it open, Exodus 33 and 34. Towards the end of the reading that Caroline read, there's this, this thing that God repeats as he passes by Moses, which we'll get to into a moment. And it's been called by many the, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. If you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, blah, 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 blah. Right? It's like one of the most memorable verses that you would ever see plastered anywhere. This was kind of like the Jewish version of that. Why? Because in it, God himself reveals who he is. He unpacks his heart and his character and, frankly, his goodness. And so this is a moment where we can come and let not just our own perceptions and conceptions of God you know, come together as we debate whether God can be good. We just let God tell us what does it mean for him to truly be good. But you've got to understand the context. Moses, the Israelite people, have just fled from Egypt. I'm sure you've heard the story, but you need to feel the weight of it. This, this whole nation of people have been slaves for hundreds of years. And I mean slaves, back-breaking, laborsome slavery. They've just fled for their lives with an army chasing them, and God's miraculously saved them. But all they've got to show for it is the possessions they can carry on their back and in their wagons. They don't have much to call their own. And they're now just wandering around on the outskirts of Egypt, following this big pillar of fire that God puts before them to show them where to go. But there's a lot of unknown. They're dealing with the mess of their past. You can imagine being a slave for a few decades and what that might do to your head. They're dealing with the mess of their situation, and they're camped in tents by a mountain. It's kind of a weird place for the goodness of God to show up, right? In the same way that when we sit in our hardest moments, it can seem weird for us to go, well, God is good. And that's where God turns up in this situation. But if that wasn't low enough, this moment that we just had read is right after the golden calf. You know that story? Moses goes up the mountain. He takes down the Ten Commandments. One of them is, you shall have no other God but me. He comes down the mountain, and his bro Aaron is just like, hey, dude, check this thing we made out. We got all the jewelry together, and we made a cow. It's incredible. It's a gold cow. We called him Bruce. He's our God. What do you think? Right? Like, that's kind of what happens in Exodus. Like, at this whole God in the pillar of fire, an unknown voice in the sky, it wasn't really for us. We want to have a God that we can, like, kind of look at, put our hands on. And, and Moses just starts tearing his clothes off because he's encountered what the true living God is, and he knows that this is just an absolute mockery and insult. 
And it's at this point where you shouldn't be thinking, is God good? You should be thinking, is God going to crush us? The holy, almighty one who had just literally rescued them out of slavery. And they go and slap him in the face in this way. It's incredible. Terrible, but incredible. And this is where we see the goodness of God. This is, why, this is how you can see how good God is to bear with these people and to show them something of himself. And so we come along and Moses is chatting with God, trying to make atonement for what his people have done. And it I think it'll come up on the screen. We get to verse 19. This is where his conversation goes. This is why I love Moses. He has got some serious boldness. He's, right after all that I've just described happens, he looks at God and he says, now show me your glory. <laughs> Could you imagine the glory of the God who he's just witnessed on the mountain. Show me your glory. And yet God answers, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. That just gives you a sense of the majesty of God. What I love here is, Moses. notice what Moses asked him. He asked God, show me your glory. How does God respond? He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. That's intentional. God's not just like got, the, got his words mixed up. Moses is asking for glory. He's asking for the, the, the weight, the, the beauty. The sh- like Think of the sun shining in all of its glory. He's asking you to see a glimpse of, of God's glory. He wants to see him in all of his fullness and experience, not just see and know, but to experience the God who formed form stars with a word, right? And God says, sure, I'll show you my goodness. And that's incredible. Because in saying that, he's saying, when you encounter the infinite eternal God in all of his splendor, you cannot help but encounter his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his tenderness, his love. The two go hand in hand because God is is a, a God who is completely full of integrity and everything about him holds together in perfect tandem. So yes, he is the God who no one can see and live, and yet he's the God who cares for those people who wouldn't be able to live in his presence. And so he's like, all right, let's do this, Moses. I got a plan for you. Let's go up the mountain. If I go in front of you, you're going to drop down dead. So we got we to work on that. I got an idea. Here's what we'll do. There's a little crack in the rock over here. Why don't we like hide you in there? And then I'll pass by. I won't go right in front of you. I'll just pass by. And then you can just catch a glimpse of my back as I pass you, Right? It's incredible. Moses is like, yeah, it sounds like a great plan, dude. Let's do this. But if you keep following along, the minute the scene finishes, here's what happens. Exodus 34, 8, the next verse. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. When you encounter the living God, you fall flat on your face in worship because his glory is incredible. As he walks past, he encounters the glory of the living God. But as the glory of the living God passes by him as he's hiding in this little crack in the rock, what does he say? And this is where we see his goodness, the two held perfectly in tandem. He describes for us his heart, his character, his goodness. So come with me, verse 6 of 34. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Let's break it down. That word for compassionate is a beautiful word. It's a word that describes a mother's tenderness towards her children. You can just picture a a woman who's recently given birth to a child and it's fragile, it's vulnerable, and yet there is only love in her eyes. And you know that she would do anything to protect her child. God's describing himself in this maternal, protective, tender sort of way. That's his compassion. And he's gracious. This word here means kind or gracious. But in the case of God, who is above everyone else, it comes with this tone of mercy. Do you know that God knows you better than you know you? He knows every thought, every feeling, every moment that you've ever existed. And his posture towards you is mercy. If it wasn't, we should be terrified because even with the little bit we know of ourselves, we know we can't stand before a God like that. But he's, he's gracious. He's merciful. He says he's abounding in love and faithfulness. That word for love is chesed. You might have heard it before. And it's so much more than just our normal you know, English sterile word for love. It has this tone of like covenant, faithful, loyal, I will never leave you nor forsake you kind of love. There's nothing you can do to stop me from being committed to you and holding on to you and loving you. And it's to the point that he says that I'm forgiving sin and rebellion and wickedness to thousands. It's incredible. This is the goodness of God. Shining in all of his majesty and yet declaring these beautiful truths about himself. But then you kind of get to this weird stuff about guilt. You're like, okay, this is where we get to the weird Old Testament God who has a bit of like problems with his character and gets a bit angry sometimes. Do you know? Sometimes that's how we read the Old Testament. It's not the case here. But he says, yeah, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. How, how does this idea of punishment and justice come into play with his goodness? Well, I think it's beautiful. Because anybody who's suffered injustice or had someone harm them or their family, all you want is justice. And if you had a God who said, I am so good, I'm just good, and then like he just lets people go murder and steal and rape and pillage and all of these terrible things, you'd be like questioning whether this God is actually good, and you would be right to. If you are the powerful God in control of all things and you have no care about justice, you are not a good God. The reason we like to reject that idea of a just God is because we always stand with our feet firmly planted in our injustice. We know just at the back of our minds and in the back of our hearts, if God is just, we're we're stuffed. Like if we're being real, it's lovely when you know that justice will be done in your favor. It's terrifying when justice might be done against you. So this really teaches us about the goodness of God because he's not going to let any of the awful evil stuff of this world pass. He's going to do something about it. But where his goodness comes through like exponentially is when you catch that phrase, slow to anger. Slow to anger. He could have at any point in all of human history just wiped us all out and started afresh. You know, you might think of Noah and the ark, but he preserved himself a people and he said, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to commit. I'm going to follow through. He could just wipe us clear at any point, but, but no, he's slow to anger. And so much more than that, he's slow to anger because he has this grand cosmic mystery where he's going to honor his justice and deal with every problem of evil, but he's going to do it in a way that means you and I, as those evil people, can walk free. It's incredible. Only the, the mind of God could come up with this, that he would step into the world 
walking the, the path of a human like you and I, so that eventually he can take upon himself all of that anger, all of that wrath, all of that punishment, carry it on his shoulders, so that anyone who comes to him and says, please forgive me, he says, absolutely. I'm a good God. I'm tender. I'm merciful. I'm gracious, and I love you. My arms are wide open on that cross because I welcome all who come to me. It's beautiful. You're getting a glimpse here in what seems to be a little bit weird of guilt and punishment. You're getting a glimpse of the God who will go to any length to save sinners like you and I. It's incredible. So you fast forward all the way to Jesus. You come to John chapter 1, and we're introduced to who Jesus is. And John chapter 1, 14 is incredible. He's just riffing on Exodus. It's entirely just captivated, cap, uh, captivated, captured by the language that, that God was already using. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word there, He tabernacled among us. What are these people doing? They're camping in tents by a mountain. Where do you meet God? In the tabernacle. But instead of the tabernacle here, you meet God in the flesh. We have seen His what? His, His glory. That's what Moses asked to see. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. What is His glory made up of? grace and truth. You get this sense of a glorious, shining, bright God who's completely good in all of his grace and all of his truth. So when we talk about the goodness of God, we're not just talking about this like lovely sunshines and butterflies kind of business. We are talking about a God, eyes wide open, sees everything that you and I are and chooses to spend everything that he has to win you, to love you, and to forgive you. That's the goodness of God. That knowing everything about this world and our brokenness would go to any length to love us. It's incredible. So we can say God is good, and we know what it means, but it still doesn't really fix the issues that we have when life starts to fall apart. And we're still saying God is good, but, but why did he let this happen to me? Why did he let that happen to me? So I just want to quickly cover two things. One, the goodness of God for us and the goodness of God with us. We'll start with the goodness of God for us. Um, I want to ask you, when do you hear most from people, God is good? You know, maybe it's Australia Day, you're driving down the Esplanade at Balmoral, and it's a, it's a parking lot out there, and then just at the perfect spot, someone just pulls out and says, oh, you can take my parking spot? Oh, my Lord, God is good. This is the only proof I need that the divine exists, right? A park on a public holiday at Balmoral, incredible, right? Maybe it's you've, you've gone in for an interview that you didn't know you had a chance. You leave the room and immediately you get a call. The job's yours. Oh, man, God is good, right? Maybe you've been praying for something and he's come through for you. Maybe you just life has clicked into place for a moment. God is good. And you know what? God is good in all of those circumstances. Every good gift comes from our Father's hand. That's absolutely true. But what that reveals to us is we think God's goodness equals our desires being fulfilled. We think God is good when he gives me the life that I want. And it's true. When, when he does our desires and his good, when they line up, beautiful. But that's not the essence of God's goodness. What about when our prayers go unanswered? What about when the things that are entirely in his control, he still chooses not to help us in? Is he still good then? Absolutely. Come with me to Romans 8. I'll go on record. Romans 8, greatest chapter in the Bible for sure. There's nothing better. If you haven't read it before, there's your homework. Romans 8, verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. All things, absolutely everything that happens in your life. If you love God, he's working good in you. He's doing something 
positive and, and important in your life. He's, he's working in you in the midst of some of your darkest moments, not just the good things, but the, the bad things and everything in between. God has got a purpose that sits in all of your life. And sometimes it's actually in those moments where we want to cry out, God isn't good, that he's actually being most good to us. Like, just like when my daughter wants to jump headfirst off the rock pools into the water and, you know, potentially drown, I go, no, nah, that's a bad idea, right? So sometimes she gets mad at me for those things. And yet that's my goodness to her, to look after her, to make sure she survives. Sometimes what we want isn't actually what is good for us and God has something better. And other times we just are going through things with just question marks. Like, what are you doing here, God? But the promise is all things. Just prior in Romans 18, it says this. I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is wild. Let me read this again. I consider that our present sufferings, all the stuff that we're going through, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What he's saying is there is nothing when you put aside what God has for you in the future that can even compare to how beautiful and good and true it will be. There is nothing that can happen to you in this life that matters on an eternal scale. Because God has so much better for us. Just look at Jesus. There is no resurrection without the cross. There is no exalted at the right hand of of God the Father, enthroned as king to judge the living and the dead. There is none of that apart from walking that lonely road towards a Roman cross where he would suffer and die And it's in the place of greatest pain that God works his greatest good. Can you just imagine for a second being Satan? I know I don't like to imagine being Satan often, but imagine being Satan. And you're just sitting there just watching Jesus on the cross. And you're like, we bloody well got him, didn't we? We finally did it. We finally got a win on God. This is incredible. You know, the Son of God is there, arms out, breathing his last. And you think, finally, darkness has triumphed. And yet anyone with eyes to see just laughs. Because a moment where darkness thinks it's triumphed is actually the moment where God achieves his greatest good. You come to Genesis and you see Joseph, who's been take, sold into slavery, found himself in prison, ended up rising again, and goes through all of this stuff. He's talking to his brothers and he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That is the pattern of our God. Not that you would have a happy, clappy, lovely life where all your desires are met, you get your nice mansion in Mossman, your career is straightforward and life is easy, you've got a beautiful family, you've got X, Y, Z. That's not the way that God works. He doesn't want to give you a sterile, clinical, worldly life that ultimately means nothing. He has so much more for you. And it's in the ups and downs and the, the twists and turns that God is doing his incredible work. So God's goodness to you, catch it again in Romans 8 says that he is conforming us to the image of his son. What's the most important thing you could ever have happen to you in your life? That you could become the person you were meant to be. Not that you could win the lotto, you could get the job, you could do what you want to do, but that you could become more like Jesus. That's what God's doing in your life. And he's been working at it for eternity. It says he predestined you, he called you, He justified you, and guess what? He's going to glorify you too. So what is God doing? He's he's trying to pry the grips of Satan off your soul. That's what God's goodness is. He's trying to burn away those false beliefs and those false idols that we lean on that are actually keeping us from leaning fully on God. 
He's interested in deepening our dependence and our joy on Him so that we can realize His joy is greater than any other joy. He's, he's interested in forging in us a faith that's been tried and tested and refined through the fires of this world. So all that's left is pure and precious and beautiful. He's trying to prepare us for heaven like a bride for her wedding day, that moment where they walk through and stand at the aisle and everyone just gasps at their beauty. That is what God is doing in us. We need to lift our sights higher. If all we want is a nice, comfortable life, we have missed the goodness of God. Because in the difficulty of life, God has something far greater than we could ever imagine. So here's a word for for any of us who are in a hard season. Trust God. Trust Him with your difficulties. Trust Him with your pain. Trust Him with your failures. Because the purposes of God bloom in the soil of our adversity. The, The light of God, His goodness, just shines brighter out of the darkness that might be happening in your life right now. Trust Him. He's working all things for the good of those who love you. So that's God for us. And lastly, we need to think about God with us. You might have worked all of that stuff out. You know, great, I get it. Romans 8, greatest chapter in the Bible. Awesome. I'm with it. I'm for it. God's doing good stuff in my life. It hurts, but it's important. I can get around it. That sounds great. But then you start living your day-to-day life. And you look around, and there are some people who are not very nice people who seem to have it pretty good, right? You're just walking down the street, and you're like, oh, my gosh. I know you're a terrible person. I've seen the way you talk to your barista. That's how you can always test someone's character. Coffee's on the line, you know? Yeah. I, I know that you have, you've done awful things to climb the career ladder. I know that the life you've lived has been one of, of evil, really, and, and wrong and wickedness. And maybe sometimes there's just ordinary people and you go, okay, you're fine. But even as you look at sort of the, the people that are lifted up in our culture and are exalted and have wealth and have everything that seems in their life that they could ever ask for, can you be honest with me? Do you ever feel a little bitter? A little frustrated? I am working so hard to be faithful to God right now. I'm making some decisions to say no to things because I'm trying to be holy. I'm just, I'm just doing everything that I can to put him first and not live for this world. And my life is falling apart. And that guy's life is flying. It's swimming. Like, am I the only one who feels that? That's a, like, I just feel that sense of, is it worth it? Like, is this, can this be true? This is why I love Psalm 73. I only realized it this week, but this is absolutely my favorite psalm, right? It's just real. It's raw. The journey is just incredible. If you've got your Bibles open, this is awesome. Psalm 73, he just keeps it real. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, and then he just goes on this rant about how there's all these people around him who are just prospering. They're doing blatant evil. They're living terrible lives. And life is just incredible for them. And yet everything in his life is falling apart. Here's a word for someone who's in a season right now. God can handle your yelling at him, okay? Psalms, 150 of them. There are a lot where people just are real honest with where they're at with God. This is why I love this psalm. This, this, this person has felt the, the frustration and the bitterness of living in a broken world, even though they know the truth. They're trying to live for God, and yet they just feel this pain. They feel this difficulty. I love it. But there's a turning point. You come to verse 16, it's great. Because when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. You and me both, bro. Until, verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Here's the difference maker. 
Truth comes to life in the presence of God. Truth comes to life in the presence of God. You can have all the theology. You can have all the Bible knowledge. You can be doing your best to live a godly life, a holy life, but devoid of of the presence of God within that life, your truth never really takes root as it should. You live in this place of bitterness and frustration, perhaps still plodding along like the older brother in the prodigal son, you know, doing his best to please his father. But without the presence of God in your life, it's, it's deficient. But on the other side of things, when you do have the presence of God, it changes everything. Have you ever had that Sunday where you've, I don't know, had like a fight in the car on the way to church or like, you know, you've just had a terrible week and you're like, I don't know, I want to go to church this week. But then someone texts you and they're like, we'll see you on Sunday. And you're like, all right, I guess I'll go to church. You come to church, you walk in, you sit down, you're a little bit grumpy. They ask you to stand, you start singing and then something just shifts, right? Or maybe it's like a little bit further as you go into church and, and we're reading the Bible and there's just a verse that just lights up and just speaks to you. Or maybe it's during the sermon when someone's preaching a better one than this and you have this moment where it's just like, oh, that's, that's what I needed. That, that's where God meets us, because that's what we're here. We are the temple of the living God, and when we come to worship, there's this beautiful moment where we're entering into the presence of God. You didn't learn anything new, but truth takes, takes shape in the presence of God. It, everything changes. We need to be a people who, as the ancients used to say, practice the presence of God. We cannot contain God to our Sundays or just to our 30-minute quiet time, even if some of us aren't managing to do that every day. We can't keep God in a little box, in a little part of our life. When we're promised that He is within us, the Holy Spirit, the presence and power of the living God, always here, never, never far away, never distinct, always with us. We need to recognize that we have the, the un. un um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the completely open access that we need to enter into the throne room of God at any point. You know that God lives within you if you've been following Jesus for a while. But the difference is, have we opened our eyes to that reality? Have we opened our awareness to the fact that God is here? You can be in a room with someone and not really be in a room with someone, if you know what I mean. God is always with us But if we are unaware or not willing to turn our attention towards him, it's like he's not at all in terms of our experience. We need to be practicing the presence of God. It comes into the very mundane and every day. You're in the shower. Assuming you shower, that's a good thing to do. You're on the train. You're on the bus. You're you're making dinner. It's these everyday ordinary moments where we turn our attention and go, God, you're here. You're with me. And you're good. I had a moment this, this week where uh, I just felt like I wasn't enough and no matter what I did, I couldn't keep up, I couldn't keep my head above water, just, just everyday life has been so hard. And I was just driving back by myself in the car, I had five minutes and I just said, God, I'm just sick of it. And I just stopped and within two minutes I just felt this sense of, yeah, it's hard but he's here. It's hard but he's here. I didn't learn anything new. But it's, it's, it's learning to recognize what is already true in our minds, to experience it with our hearts and with our souls, that God is with us. I wonder if you've ever thought about those people who just seem to, to know God so well. God just seems so real to them. I always wondered, why is it that those people seem to have always been through stuff? Why is it that the people that have like had, had terrible things happen in life or they've suffered a lot, why is it that they're closer to God? 
well, it's, it's because they've got the theology and we've got the theology, but they've allowed their experiences to lead them to God. They've allowed their, their, the obstacles in their life to not pull back from God, but to lift their eyes to God. And it's in the context of life being hard, but God being good, that the relationship and our faith expands, and it's intimate and it's beautiful. And that's, that's the beauty of this psalm, the place where he gets Psalm 73 to 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is good. He really is. It's just our perspective that needs to shift sometimes. We need to open our eyes and go, okay, God's goodness doesn't mean he makes my life happy and comfortable. Sometimes it's really difficult, but he's doing something there. And even when he's doing something in the difficult, he's there with me. He's for me. So let's be a people who, who practice the presence of God. There's a quote. I don't even know who quoted this, but Paul Dale told me about it this week. Let me read it to you. Find joy in the everyday, not because life is always good, but because God is. Find joy in the everyday, not because life is always good, but because God is. So it's the year of goodness. We've got these journals. So I've decided for me, I'm going to try. It's not going to happen every day. I know this, but I'm going to try my, my dang hardest. So when I finally wrangle my three children to bed, and then I get through the one child screaming and being like, I need apple juice, and the other child being like, I'm actually still awake. Once I get like everyone actually asleep, I'm going to get my goodness journal out. I'm going to read Psalm 73 slowly, and I'm going to record where I've seen God's goodness. That's, that's my plan. I want to ask, what are you going to do? Let's not, every year we have a theme year, and it can be an opportunity to grow in ways you would never have thought to otherwise. Don't let this year of goodness just be a thing that happens at church. Let it be a part of your life. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to invite our band back up quickly. I'm going to give you two minutes to, I know this is, this is wrong, it's terrible, but on the first day, which is actually the 30th of January, today's the 29th, I know, but the 30th of January, I'm going to give you an opportunity to write something in it, because you're far more likely to be invested once you put pen to paper, if you're anything like me. If you don't, you're not ready to write anything down, that's cool, that's fine. Just take a moment to reflect, where, where am I going to see the, and seek the goodness of God this year?